Good evening. It's wonderful to be speaking to you today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the clergy here um, at St. Nick's, and today I'm carrying on our August series, Character Matters. This series is looking at this moment in Exodus 34 when Moses, the man who's leading God's people at the time, has asked the boldest question of God. He asks, show me your glory. And in essence, God says, you can't handle it, mate. If a weak, broken human like you looked at the full unveiled glory of God, you would die. But God goes one better. He tells Moses he'll hide him in this little crack in a cliff and cover him with his hands as he passes by. And once he's safely passed, he'll let Moses have a little peek at his back. And here's the kicker. God promises to tell Moses his name. This moment is so insane that it's referenced over 20 times throughout the rest of the Bible because God is saying, I'm not like those other gods you've heard about. I'm not distant. I'm not holding you at arm's length. I'm not a great unknown mystery. I have a name. I want you to know me. Mental, right? God is saying that he wants the little creatures that he made to know him. And so he says he's going to tell Moses his name, and he, and he doubles down. He says he's going to tell Moses what he is like. God has a character and a name, and he wants to be known by them. And so this is what he says in Exodus 34. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. We translate it as the Lord, but his name is Yahweh. He proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So that's what we're unpacking in this series. What does it mean for God to have a character, and what is that character? And each week we're going to be looking at a different characteristic. Last week Hannah looked at what it means for God to declare himself compassionate. If you didn't hear, I definitely recommend checking it out on YouTube or Spotify. And today we're going to carry on by talking about what it means for God to title himself the gracious God. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word grace. Maybe it's just a weird prayer before meals. Maybe it's a word that was bandied around a lot during childhood. You know, that wasn't very gracious, was it? Or if you're anything like me as a kid, constantly getting confused between gracious and graceful and thinking you didn't really fancy being either. Maybe it's just a word you associate with church. You've heard it here so many times in songs but you're not really 100% sure what it means. Maybe for you, it's a deeply emotive word that transports you to that moment where you met God and stirs something deep inside of you. One of the things I absolutely adore about my family is that for as long as I can remember, despite being a rather stoic bunch generally, if the conversation reared towards grace or about someone encountering grace and having their life changed by God, or something that was just a beautiful illustration of grace. Suddenly, everyone would be extremely glassy-eyed or just straight-up crying. It's a condition that seems to affect all four of us. Grace stirs a deep emotion in the Bradshaw household. 
Maybe for you it's a deeply emotive thing. And when we sing these songs about the grace of God, you can't help but feel moved. Maybe you don't know why. What do you think of when you hear the word grace? I know for me, I can't think about grace without remembering this thing that happened when I was a kid. I grew up in Devon, and so I had a lot of friends growing up who were farmers or lived next to farmers or on farms. And one day I was at my mate's farm, and we were playing catch with a frisbee, you know, one of those sweet Araby Pro ones, where like, if you lose sight of it, it's just gone forever, like you're never finding that in the grass. But we were playing catch with a frisbee like that in a field, and he threw it to me, and it was going like straight over the top of my head. And so I started running backwards to try and catch it, keeping my eye on this frisbee, desperately trying to catch it. And so I was running backwards across this field on my mate's farm, and I heard him shout something, but I didn't really fully register what he said. And suddenly, the ground gave way beneath me, and I fell into a surface-level slurry pit. Now, if you townies don't know what that is, it's where the farmer collects all of the animal's excrement to use in the future for fertilizer for their crop fields. And usually it's stored up high in big tanks, but occasionally they're like a ground-level pit. So it's basically a swimming pool of cow poo. And that is what I had fallen into. And not only is that obviously horrifyingly disgusting, but they're actually really dangerous because the risk of drowning is really high because it's so much harder to get out than water. And so I was in shock and I started to really panic. And then suddenly I saw my friend wrap a rope around himself and without a second's hesitation dive in and come over to me and drag me out to safety. And that image of diving into the muck to drag your friend out to safety always comes to mind for me when I think about Grace. Or maybe for you, Grace is just some annoying girl you remember from school. I don't know. But what we're going to look at this morning is, this morning? This evening, is what that word in God's self-declaration means. What does it mean that in God's very own character statement, this moment when he reveals himself, that he declares that to his core, he is a gracious God. So the Old Testament is originally written in Hebrew, a much more gutsy, raw language than the Queen's. And the Hebrew word used here in our Exodus passage for gracious is chanun, which the noun of which is ken, which interestingly is also Welsh for ken. I'm just kidding on that last part. So grace in the Old Testament is ken, um, and by looking at the other uses of this word in the Old Testament, of which there are many, and these are just some, we can begin to build a picture of the depth of the meaning of that word. In Psalm 45.2, a skilled poet is described as having lips of chen, lips that he or she can use to craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or in Proverbs 1.9, a dazzlingly beautiful piece of jewelry is called an ornament of chen. It attracts attention and people's favor. People delight in looking at it. So we begin to see that chen, this word, is used to describe a gift given out of delight or deep favor. And we see this further in the book of Esther. Esther is an Israelite, one of God's chosen people, and she's ended up as the wife of the king of Persia, the king of the largest, most oppressive empire of the day. If you've seen 300, he's the dude in that. Um, and there's been this law passed, which in essence is a genocidal law against the Israelites. 
which has been snuck through by one of the king's top people. And having prayed and fasted, because to go into the king without being summoned is basically a death sentence regardless of who you are, Esther goes before the king to request that this law never be enacted. She goes before the king to ask for salvation for her people. And when she does it, she asks for a gift of chen. That's Esther 8.3. It's a request for chen. It's a request for the gift of chen. And the, the king grants this gift because he delights in her, because he favors her. So those are interesting. But more so, we see something crazily countercultural and unexpected about this word chen in the Old Testament. We see that the most extreme kind of chen is showing favor to someone when they don't deserve it. Someone who shouldn't be getting a generous gift, but should instead be getting what they have coming to them. In Genesis, we hear the story of Jacob, who cheats his brother Esau, steals his birthright, and runs away. It's a huge deal in their culture. And then after 20 years, he wants to come back and make things right. And when he does, he comes back to his brother, and what he says is, may I find chen in your eyes. That's Genesis 33.8. Jacob isn't asking for what's fair. He's not asking for what he deserves or what he thinks he might get because he knows his brother delights in him, but for favor that is totally undeserved. In fact, he's asking for something that's the complete opposite of what he deserves. And yet, that's exactly what his brother chooses to do. He chooses to delight in him, to show him favor that he doesn't deserve. So we see throughout the Old Testament that people who are made in the image of a God who is gracious can show this can. But the one who shows it even more is God himself. To understand the magnitude of this, we need to look back at the events that run up to our declaration of God's character that come before it in the book of Exodus. God has created a good and perfect creation, but brokenness via human selfishness and a desire to be one's own God have entered the world and things begin to unravel. God steps in, choosing a people to be his own, his representatives on the earth. To bring the whole of creation to true life by pointing to him, the Israelites. The Israelites grow in number and because of the threat of that, they end up in slavery in Egypt. We then get the story of Moses, his life among the Egyptians, and God's call on him to deliver the Israelites from slavery there. God calls Moses to deliver a number of signs to the Egyptians through a number of plagues God brings against Egypt in opposition to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in refusing to set the Israelites free. This all culminates in the Exodus where God's people are finally delivered from slavery in Egypt and they escape through the incredible, powerful, supernatural acts of God, the parting of the sea, leading them into freedom and new life. And to instruct them on how they're going to live in this new freedom and relationship with God, they're given the Ten Commandments. God's instructions on how these people were to live. How they were going to conduct themselves in light of God's love and saving acts. Drawing them back to how God originally intended humanity to live before the world became so broken. And then we come to Exodus 32. Two chapters before our declaration. The golden calf debacle. The Israelites almost 
immediately forget the God who has delivered them. And seemingly, the second Moses turns his back to go up to Mount Sinai and receive these Ten Commandments, they turn their back on God and they begin instead to worship something that they've made themselves, that they can see in front of them, a golden statue of a cow. The betrayal of the Creator, the betrayal of their Savior. It should mean the end to relationship. And outside of relationship with the God of life, there is only death. All the mythology of the surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures where the Israelites were was filled with story after story of sinning against your God and being destroyed, wiped out. And God is rightly angered and mortified by their sin. The fact that he is a good and just God demands that he is. And yet Moses then asked God, he asked Yahweh to consider giving them a gift that they don't deserve. Chen. And God says, yes. He says, the ultimate act of Chen. The promise to forgive them their brokenness and the promise to be with them. The promise to forgive them their brokenness and to be with them. That's in Exodus 33, 16. And we see that same revulsion to sin and yet that heart of Ken, of grace, in Hosea 11, 7 to 9. It says this. This is the word of God. This is him speaking. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God most high. I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. God's heart of grace on plain display. The undeserved gift. I love what Dane Ortland, the theologian, says about this passage. He says this, It is in consideration of his people's sins that God's heart goes out to them in compassion. God looks at his people in all their moral filth. They have proven their waywardness time and again. Not occasionally, but they are bent on turning away from him. But here's the thing. They're his so what happens inside of God? We must read carefully here. God is God and is not at the mercy of passing emotions in the way that we embodied creatures are, much less we sinful embodied creatures. But what does the text say? We are given a rare glimpse into the very center of who God is. And we see and feel a deeply affectional convulsing within the very being of God. His heart is inflamed with pity and compassion for his people. He simply cannot give them up. Nothing could cause him to abandon them. They are his. You are his. His character matters deeply. His heart of chen, of grace, it is not changeable. It rises within him when he looks at you. The Old Testament Hebrew word for that heart is chen. The New Testament written in Greek, the word charis is used to describe the same thing. 
It means a gracious gift. And when we're introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we are told by John that Jesus is God's glorious and beautiful charis, become flesh, become human. Jesus is grace personified. He came as the undeserved gift. He came as the undeserved forgiveness. He came as God to be with his people. In our declaration in Exodus, God declares what he's like. He self-proclaims that I am a gracious God. But we're slow learners, right? So what the Father said, the Son proved true. Jesus went to the cross as the ultimate gift of undeserved grace. The heartbeat that goes to the very core of who God is, put on display on a wooden cross. It is the center point of all human history. It is God's proclamation that you are his. He could never leave you broken. He could never leave you hurting. He could never turn his back on you. It is the core of his very nature to bring you home. So what has this mammoth biblical overview of a couple of words in different languages been about? Well, the point is this. God is gracious. He always has been. He always will be. He longs to give you the undeserved gift of his forgiveness and his presence. He always has. He always will. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Throughout the word of God and the whole of human history, we see that God is gracious. He always has been, and he does not change. So just like the biblical prophets like Isaiah who looked back to God's grace in the past and therefore could boldly proclaim that God would be gracious again in the future, which was done in Jesus, you can know every minute of every day that God longs to pour his grace out on you. He always has. He always will. His love for you will never run out. His gut-wrenching heart for you will never run out. His forgiveness for you will never run out. He will never stop delighting in showing you who he is. Matt Southcombe, our associate pastor, is an incredible man, isn't he? Today, he led this service and led worship. I have the privilege of working closely with Matt. He's, he's a delight to work with. He is gracious. He's kind. He's patient. He longs to see this congregation close to the heart of Jesus. He's prayerful in it. And he is an incredible father. I have the joy of watching him be a father, stealing all his good ideas. It is a joy to work with Matt. I respect him so much. Or at least I did. Something terrible happened the other day. We were having a barbecue, and I was responsible for the meat, and Matt was hosting the barbecue, and I had spent hours painstakingly marinating all this beautiful meat. I'd let him marinate for five days. That's how invested I was. I'd arranged for an incredible barbecue to be at the site that was big enough, you know, to cater to all this delicious meat. There were incredible chicken thighs. There was minted lamb. It was, it was going to be sensational. What I tragically found out when I arrived was that Matt Salcombe owns no barbecue tools. What kind of man 
doesn't own any barbecue tools. And there it was. I lost all my respect for him, just like that. It was gone. <laughs> if we're honest with ourselves, we all have those things, right? Those things that we don't let anyone else see. Those parts of ourselves that we keep hidden. Those habits that we never speak of or those thoughts that we never air because we fear that that's the moment that everyone around us will drop us. That's the moment they'll turn their back on us. That's the moment they'll lose respect for us, maybe even hate us. We all have those things, right? And it's easy to translate our expectation of fallen, unforgiving humans onto God. But God is not a fallen human with a limited capacity for forgiveness. He is grace to the core. He is grace personified. That part of you that you hide away is the part that God most wants to meet you in. The worst of yourself is the part that makes his heart break for you the most. It's where he longs to meet you, to pour out his grace upon you. Every minute of every day, God longs to pour out his grace on you. When you feel like you couldn't possibly pray for forgiveness for that same thing again, because you've been in this place a thousand times already, God longs to pour his grace out on you. When you expect him to react like a human, to turn his back on you because of your brokenness, to be angry, God longs to pour his grace out to you. When you self-exclude like we all do, God forgives other people, but he won't forgive me. God longs to pour his grace out on you. When you come to him with those parts of yourself that you wouldn't show to anyone else because you're ashamed, God longs to pour his grace out on you. God longs to pour his grace out to you. He always has. He always will. Will you let him? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Why don't I pray? Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We thank you that it goes to the very core of who you are. We thank you that you are faithful and you are true and we can trust in your character. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. There has never been a time when you haven't been gracious. There has never been a time when you haven't longed to call your people home, to forgive their sins, and to be with them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you are, and we pray that your grace would always astound us and that we would live in it in each and every moment of each and every day. Amen.